0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 361 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, your one-stop shop for all things compliance-related. Today, I have with me Don Fisher. Don is an export control lawyer practicing in San Francisco and Washington. He is an expert in U.S. export control Together with FCPA regulations, he's done extensive strategic and practical work in helping helping companies implement cost-effective, risk-appropriate compliance programs in the export control area. He has dealt proactively with systems to comply with Chinese export and import laws, and he's done specific export control services relating to risk assessments, risk export process development Export licenses under E uh, A R, ITAR, and OFAC control. <coughs> excuse me, technology control plans and requests for advisory opinions. In this episode, we take a look at what are the basics of export controls. Which gov- government agencies regulate exports? All uh, take a look at the always tricky question: What is a deemed export? We consider whether or not export control should be evaluated by defense contractors only or other commercial operations. How do these requirements impact your company? We touch upon some of the consequences for getting it wrong, and what are some of the challenges that Don has seen companies face in becoming compliant with export control laws. It's a fascinating exploration of a subject that touches the anti-corruption compliance practitioner actually more than you might think. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, we're going to take things in a little bit different direction as I have Don Fisher with me of Don Fisher & Associates, and we're going to talk about export controls. Most people know that I uh, have advocated the concept of compliance convergence, which is different types of compliance, anti-corruption compliance, anti-money laundering compliance, and certainly export control compliance. And that each of the compliance practitioners in those specialities need to have a a familiarity with the others because uh, they interact and intersect so much. Once upon a time for my sins, I was appointed an export control director of a – oilfield service company, so I have some familiarity with this topic and understand a little bit of how they all relate. But I asked Don if he could take some time to visit with us and really give us a a good grounding and introduction into export controls. So Don, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, thanks for taking the time uh, to visit with me today and welcome. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. So why don't we just kind of start with the basics, Don, and what are export controls? So Tom, these
1: are the uh, federal regulations that come from various government agencies, primarily the Departments of Commerce, Defense, State, and Treasury, uh, but there are also other agencies, um, that, that get involved. For example, uh, the Department of Energy, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Department of Agriculture, uh, Homeland Security, Immigration, NSA. And essentially, um, they regulate um, two things. First of all, what items uh, such as instruments, software, materials, and technology that may have some uh, national security sensitivity, or other kinds of sensitivity, um, uh, they regulate what we can transfer or send out of the country internationally by any means. And if we are going to export something that meets um, a level of sensitivity by one of these agencies' definitions, then it may require uh, an export license or prior authorization. They also regulate, um, to some degree, the extent to which we share uh, export control technology with foreign nationals who are present in our community under various visa programs. And that's true whether uh, these individuals are in our corporate community or in our university research community, etc. And the idea is, is that when we share export control technology with an individual who is visaed to be here for a certain period of time that is finite presumptively at the end of that period, uh, that individual would either return home to their country of citizenship or to uh, a third country, but that technology would exit with them. The export, however, occurs at the point of access or use of the information, potentially long before that person uh, gets on a plane to leave. So those are the two primary areas that regulations uh, address, and then there were some other requirements we can talk about also.
0: Don, you said a lot in there. Let me uh, unpack a couple of things. Uh, the first one was um, you talked about uh, technology. And one yes. of the things that many people who sit in the general counsel's office, uh, complain and a corruption compliance practitioners really don't understand is that there is a level of license requirement for various types of technology. And the things that perhaps a, 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 an encryption compliance specialist does not understand is covered by a license could be an encryption level in routine software or something I don't want to say as bland as that, but that the level of technology uh, can can. Very widely. And it does not have to be simply uh, have a military application. It can have a business application. It can have a university application. You have many different types of applications. So that's one of the reasons that when I uh, get a case uh, that has any export implications, Control implications always run to someone like you uh, who would know, yes or no, this is EAR-99 or this requires a license. And if, if it does require a license, how far that license or how robust that license processing may be. The second thing you said, though, was a concept that, that really still um, confuses a lot of people. And, and I would call it a deemed export, but you give a much more uh, detailed explanation of it, which is when you deliver the information to a foreign national It's not where that occurs, it's when it occurs, and if it occurs in the United States, uh, that's what I've always understood to be a deemed export. So I was wondering if you might expound a little bit more on both of those points.
1: Yes. So um, with respect to um, things that are export controlled, you're quite right that from the government's perspective, they could be um, items, instruments, software, materials or proprietary technology, that is to say technology which is not already in the public domain, that is either dual use, that is to say civilian by design and application, and we may use it uh, in industry and we may use it in research, but is sophisticated enough to uh, inherently have a defense capability. So, so, um, based on the Commerce Department's control list, they they require prior authorization or they regulate items that they consider of dual-use concern. Um, The State Department, on the other hand, uh, regulates or has jurisdiction over items that are specially designed or modified for defense purposes. And uh, the definition of defense uh, under the ITAR um, can actually have many broad applications. We can purchase best-in-class research instruments that were designed for defense purposes. They're commercially available, but it's up to us to manage either their international transfer or the sharing of those items with, with foreign nationals. So there's the dual-use side, and then there is the defense side. And you raise a good point that with respect to foreign nationals uh, and this concept of deemed export, um, it's it's nuanced insofar as we might have certain kinds of instruments, defense instruments, or we may have certain kinds of technology. And when we provide that to a foreign national um, for purposes of their particular position in research or in industry, then uh that is considered an export because, as I said earlier, that individual is presumed to be in the United States only for a finite period of time. And it's at the point of sharing that technology, either by access to it or use of it, depending on the type of technology, um and and whether the State Department or Commerce is governing it. Um, when that technology is accessed or used that's effectively when the export uh, occurs so um these days uh many corporations um who are manufacturers and distributors who are r&d engineering design houses um across any number of different industries um when they have foreign national employees or or guests could be visitors or research fellows or scholars visiting from other countries, that's certainly common in universities. This is an area that they they pay attention to. Um, and when it comes to getting export licenses, um, it's typically on uh, uh, from the dual-use perspective, it's on a country-by-country, item-by-item basis. So I might need to get a license for an item that I would send to, for example, to Singapore, but might not need a license for that same item to send to France. And likewise, to share it with a Singaporean foreign national might require an export license, but not necessarily with a French foreign national.
0: Don, if I'm, uh, well, I'm in Houston and and a large part of my uh, legal practice has been in the energy space. How to export control uh requirements affect sort of non-military kind of what i would call just a regular commercial operation uh you you've seen to have detailed a wide variety of areas um does a company that really does business internationally need to be concerned with this or uh, is it is it something else
1: well i think that that to the extent that that certain- Certainly any company that is exporting anything internationally, it would be of concern. Uh, and I should add that because of the national security implications, um, the enforcement penalties are, are severe. They can uh, take the form of uh, a civil administrative, you know, financial penalties, um, which can be significant. Um, there can be revocation of export privileges. There can be federal environment. From federal contracts. Um, And uh, certainly, if there were intentional wrongdoing um, found, uh, the matter could be referred to the Department of Justice. But to your point, Tom, I think it really affects anyone who is engaged in um, in technology that may meet these definitions of sensitivity right here in the United States. Again, to the extent that they might um, uh, validly employ foreign nationals. um, uh, or, or, for example, if they have procurement programs where they're sourcing components internationally um, and and those those suppliers come to the United States to understand the process that's required, or if there are international customers who come to the United States to understand you know, what it is that, that they're getting. Um, all of those things really have an impact on uh, a domestic corporation um, operating in this area.
0: So one of the things that uh, was, uh, I hate to use the word bugaboo, but it's a great word, so I'll use it. Uh, A bugaboo in the energy space was the issue of hand-carried tools. Uh, Typically, an oil field service worker, particularly one in a repair, would travel to an overseas location, uh, would take his tools with him. Uh, and these were not simply a hammer, or a ratchet, and a screwdriver. These could be uh, up to a million dollars worth of sophisticated tools to work on an oil rig, to work on a uh, any type of oil field service equipment. And there was a continuing continuing debate on whether that needed to have an export license. Um, and I and I use that example as a way to introduce how does someone like yourself communicate to a uh, and anti corruption compliance practitioner or even a business unit employee sort of what the requirements of an export control program are and how do you get that information out to people in the field who, who might be violating the law without even recognizing it?
1: Certainly. Well, you raise a very good point that an export can occur by any means. First of all, so it can be, you know, conventional cargo shipment. It can be through a FedEx or UPS courier account, and. Is if we are hand carrying a tool of trade um, for um, uh, occupation abroad or research abroad, what you know, what, what could that item be controlled? And the answer is absolutely. Now, then, it depends on the sensitivity of the item and which agency, state, or commerce is actually governing it. Um, in the case of the Commerce Department, dual-use items that we talked about earlier, there can be a license exception which says if we are transferring an item internationally, hand-carrying it temporarily, we're going to bring it back within a year, and it can remain in our effective control while we are abroad, then it may qualify for a license exception. On the other hand, if it's a State Department item, let's say, for example, we were bringing um, either, it could be a technical data or software that is governed by the State Department, it could be a sensor, it could be any number of different kinds of instruments, then uh, all State Department items are presumptively um, require an export license, even if we're just using them temporarily um, abroad. So it really depends on the item and, and, and the sensitivity and which agency is governing it. And I think that this is a matter of awareness. And so, for um, for anti-corruption professionals in a corporation, or for those tasked with um, overall compliance integrity, um, I think it's it's really important to get the word out. That um, uh, there are these kinds of export controls that can have an impact on 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 how the company conducts business, and uh, and so for individuals who uh, whose responsibilities either require shipment of things or the hand carrying of items, notifying the appropriate person in the company proactively of that intention is really. Um, the the best thing to do. Typically, with enough time, it is possible to get an export license unless it really is, um, an ultra-sensitive item to one of, of several, you know, absolutely prohibited countries. But with enough lead time, um, often it's possible to, to get the compliance protocol in place. So I think internal communication to the individual who is designated as the export
0: control go-to person is really critical. Don, you uh, listed some of the penalties that a corporation might face uh, for a violation of export control, but w- one of the things that uh, struck me when I first came into this area was this, this can be actually go-to-jail kind of stuff, that we've had cases where individuals were uh, criminally prosecuted for violation of export control. And I was wondering if you might detail some of the, the higher profile cases and, and what that meant to those individuals' liberty. Sure.
1: So let's start with what I call inadvertent or, 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 or negligent errors. Um, the regulations, both the dual use controls and the State Department defense controls, they have mechanisms to disclose or to report, um, errors that, that occur. And, and, and that's, that's not, of course, uncommon since given the complexity of the regulations. And so, um, uh, and, and normally that results, depending on the gravity of the situation, it may just result in a warning letter based on a commitment to rectify the situation going forward. Um, however, if there are multiple errors disclosed, or if one of the agencies themselves investigates and finds the error without disclosure, then of course it might be subject to, um, the kinds of penalty actions that we, that we talked about, um, the vast majority of export control uh, violations are um, are due to negligence or a lack of understanding how the regulations operate and and those where the agency perceives uh, an egregious disregard for the regulations and or intentional wrongdoing, those are the ones that may be referred to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution. You're quite right that there are um those cases um exist um every year um and uh a number of them um I can think of several in, in the last two years that have resulted in uh criminal sentencing um and certainly um criminal uh penalties. Uh and the bottom line is- is that any entity that you know suffers that really is going to have a significant problem going forward, both for purposes of maintaining their export business, but also um, they're going to end up on a watch list that is going to be published in the Federal Register, uh, the information would become public if there's a criminal violation and, and then, uh, it can be pro, a prohibition to actually do business with a company that is an export control violator. So, so the consequences, um, Reputationally and otherwise are, are severe. And, and that's, that's, I think, you know, a very important reason for, um, for the corporate community and the higher education research community to pay attention to this. The other thing that I would point out is that for a company that is expanding internationally, and and must take into account, um, you know, the anti-corruption regulations, you know, how one interacts um, uh, with foreign officials, um, there is also a segment of that which comes up in the export control regulations as well. And that has to do with the way that we uh, provide defense services and the way in which we might pay individuals to broker um, services for us. So there's actually a very direct connection between um, the, um, the anti-corruption regulations and the SCPA, and um, uh, some of the export control regulations. And I think it's important to recognize that the agencies... Talk to each other. It never was the case. Uh, up, I would say even up until five years ago. Um, but now we are finding that the uh, that the Treasury Department, the State Department, Commerce, and Defense they they all are now systematically in touch with each other.
0: And Don, I wondered if a company is moving into the international market or. You know, they listen to this podcast and think, uh, you know, this is something we need to take a look at. What's the best way for a company to either uh, start the process to implement necessary oversight for export control or even assess their risk to move forward to to manage that risk from an export control uh, perspective, I should say?
1: You know, it's a great question. And I, th- I think that, um, an export compliance program really begins with understanding what one's risk profile is. And I say that because in order for a program to be effective, it really should be proportionate to, to the risks involved. It should address the risks and, and be flexible enough to, to grow with the company. But I think it's actually a mistake for companies to bite off more than, than what they can actually handle at any one time. So, so typically uh, it is useful to um, have either an internal export control assessment or have someone come in and undertake an assessment that looks at the 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 the, the, the Scope of business activities from, from the beginning in terms of sales and, and, and market development to, uh, customer service and contracts to engineering and manufacturing, procurement, IT support. HR in the case of bringing on foreign nationals, um, aftermarket service support, shipping and receiving, uh, R&D, all of those functions touch export control, and I think that, uh, or have an export control implication. And I think that um, by starting with an assessment, one can then say, okay, here are my top five risks, here are the things that I really need to address right now. Uh, There might be other things, but I can defer those uh, pending resolution of of what is more of a priority. So a risk assessment is important. And then once we know that, once we know what our risks are, then um, incorporating into our standard work procedures, very transparent, easy to follow export processes. And I I mentioned all of those phases of business development, uh, contracts, etc., Um, procurement and manufacturing and engineering, there, there would be an export control process incorporated into each of, each of those functions, standard operating procedures. And, um, and, and once that's done, the next thing is really training, making sure that, um, the, that corporate personnel, or in the case of universities, academic and research personnel, um, are aware uh, that these export processes exist, why they're important, and who the go-to person is in the organization to ask for help.
0: Well, Donna, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if anyone wanted to follow up with you directly or find out more information about you or your firm. Uh, could they email you, or how would they find uh, find out that information?
1: Absolutely. So um, we uh, can be reached. Uh, I can be reached at... D Fisher, that's D F I S C H E R, at Fisher um, associates.com. So D Fisher at Fisher uh, dash associates.com or uh, through my mobile number, which is 415. 415- Nine eight seven four zero three nine. We are located in San Francisco, but have offices in Washington, um, Shanghai, and and in Dublin. And so, uh, we try to to reach as many time zones as we can.
0: So I've been visiting with Don Fisher of Don Fisher and Associates. It's been a fascinating discussion of uh, what are export controls, and more importantly, what you can do as a compliance practitioner to help you your company comply with this area of law and we touched upon the convergence between export control and anti-corruption compliance. I hope to explore this with you further Don. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, there are a fair number of enforcement actions and trials that pop up in my world that have export control uh, considerations and perhaps I can call upon you as our export control expert going forward. So thank you.
1: It yeah, would we- yeah, you're very welcome. It would be my pleasure, and I'm happy to respond to any questions which our, our uh, participants and audience might have. Thanks so much.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would very much help in our rankings and help get the word out about the most senior podcast in the compliance space also would help expand the compliance podcast network thank you again for joining us on this episode of the fcpa compliance report and i hope you'll join us next week for, the, for another episode the fcpa compliance report is a part of the compliance podcast network